If you have your Bibles, uh, take them and turn with me into the book of Acts uh, this morning as we uh, continue to work our way through this uh, passage of Scripture. And uh, I don't know about you, but I don't think there's any time when I come to a passage of Scripture when it seems to fall off the page to me. And uh, this passage of Scripture was no exception as I read it and thought about it and read it some more and did my own thinking. Well, I thought, well, the next best person um, to God is my dad. And so I thought, well, I'll email dad and say, dad, can you give me a hand? Um, I'm working through this passage and I'm finding it a bit difficult. And, um, you know, do you have any help for me? Because he's probably preached 5,000 sermons and probably written on this one. And he replies back to me, Paul, I do not see anything difficult. Read this passage. Um, Read such and such. And uh, so um, some struggle and some don't. Um, As you come to the passage, you may not struggle with it at all, but uh, I do trust that God will... Um, give us some clarity and guidance as we go through this particular passage. Um, Ephesians chapter, or Acts chapter 19, sorry, verses 11 to 20. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by Jesus, whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. All this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Father, thank you for our time again together now in your word. What a gift it is to us. What a help it is to us. Open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word today. Help us not miss Christ, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I appreciated the scripture Mike read at the top of the passage. He spoke to me about it earlier this week, and as I thought about it, it really frames this text that we've read today. The short part of verse 2 of Psalm 138 simply says, You have exalted above all things your name and your word. That's what we see happening in this passage. Uh, Sometimes you will hear people say, um, How do we understand the Old Testament and New Testament? And they will say something like, The New Testament is contained in the Old Testament, and the Old Testament is explained in the New Testament. I think here we find an example of that particular verse that his name will be exalted above all things and also his word. We see that explained in this particular passage. I think for me, the key to understanding this passage is in verse 20, where it says, So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. My own translation of that text would be, so with great might, the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail. All these incidents that Luke has been recording so far about uh, the the 12 that 
um, came, uh, became followers of Christ and about um, him re- reasoning boldly in the synagogue and about um, this extraordinary working of God with the handkerchiefs and the aprons and with these seven sons of Sceva, all of those things serve to illustrate that one text. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. The last we heard of last week was verse 10, which also emphasized the word of God. And it says there that this continued his teaching so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Again, front and center is the word of God that is growing and is being proclaimed and is being distributed throughout all of Asia. It's fascinating to me to just reflect as I looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 8 to 9, where Paul is writing uh, there to the Corinthian believers. And he says to them um, in verses uh, 8 to 9 of verse 16, But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. I think any time there is an opportunity for the gospel and any time there is uh, the chance that God will do mighty things, that there will also be numerous adversaries. We think of that when we think about the city of Ephesus. Ephesus was known for a number of things. One, it was a commercial center. And certainly money can be one of the adversaries to the gospel. But it was a commercial center where where um, it was a great shipping port and it was a central trading route and it was well known for for its impact on the commerce of the area. On top of that, and we'll look a little bit more at this possibly next week, is that it was also a, a significant religious center. For there was the cult of Artemis. And there the temple was one of the largest temples ever built. And in fact, it was one of the seven wonders of the world. And it had a dramatic influence on uh, on the spirituality of Asia, that one particular temple. And so clearly... It was an adversary to the gospel. Added to this, Ephesus was known as an occult center, a center for the magical arts. All kinds of magic and all kinds of occult practices took place there on a daily and a regular basis. One wrote, Ephesus was a renowned center for the magical and the occult arts, so much so that papyri containing magical formula and incantations were commonly called Ephesian letters. Another wrote, the atmosphere of the city was electric with sorcery and incantations, with exorcists and with all kinds of magical impulses. It was a place where magic and sorcery and the occult flourished. Added to that, it was also a place that was known for much evil because uh, the temple of, of Artemis was a place of sanctuary. And there was a line, a, 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 a radius around the temple for which anyone who had committed any kind of horrific crime could go and find sanctuary there. And so there were criminals from all over the place that would come and find the center of the city around the temple to be a place where they congregated and where they gathered. And so you get a picture that Ephesus was a place, really, in which there were many adversaries to the gospel. There were adversaries in the synagogue as Paul had gone into the synagogue to teach and to proclaim. Finally, they had become so obstinate and hard-hearted that they pushed him out. There were adversaries among the working classes, as we will see, as the gospel begins to penetrate into the religious system of that particular area and begins to break down the worship of Artemis and Diana. There were adversaries in the heavenly places, as we will soon see. And yet the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Whenever there are doors for effective service for the gospel open, 
there will be numerous adversaries that stand against it. I think this passage also illustrates not only the power of the Word of God and the influence of the Word of God, but it also influences or illustrates something which we need to be reminded of from time to time, and that is that we live in a world in which there is intense spiritual conflict. There are many people, and you will go to the university today, you will go to high schools, you will go to elementary schools and middle schools, and they will not teach anything of this philosophy or this worldview. They will teach what more, most, mostly we call scientific naturalism, that all that we see is all that there is, that all that we see can be explained mostly by science, that there is no invisible reality, there is no spiritual reality, there is no world outside the material and the physical. But the Christian worldview is dramatically different from that worldview. The Christian worldview reminds us that there are spiritual forces in the heavenly places in which we are engaged with on a daily basis. I think again of Paul's summary in Ephesians chapter 6, and many of you are familiar with that. When Paul talks there about putting on the whole armor of God, he says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. I do believe that there is a real devil. I do believe that he is powerful and influential. I do believe that he is at work in this world in which we live. And he says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities and against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Loved ones, you will not make sense of the Christian life if you do not understand that you are in a spiritual battle and that there are spiritual forces of darkness all around us and always aggressive towards us. It's a very spiritual world. There are so many texts that we could go to. You could go to Deuteronomy chapter 13 and I just, well, you could go to Genesis chapter 1 and 2 or chapter 3 when uh, the snake and the serpent comes and appears and right away you begin to see the spiritual conflict that is in the world. You go to Deuteronomy chapter 13 and you see their dreamers or prophets who are able to proclaim things and they come true. You go to Exodus chapter 7 and 8 and you find there God giving Moses extraordinary power to bring plagues upon the land of Egypt. And the first three of those plagues, Pharaoh commands his magicians and sorcerers, and they do the exact same things that Moses is able to do with the power of God. There is very real power in the world of occult and in the world of evil. I find that this influence is everywhere in our lives. I was thinking of a couple instances of this when I was uh, going through my head. I was thinking of David and and God, and I, I don't understand all of this, but God was angry with Israel, and he Uh, incited David to number the people. But then you go and you read the translation in, in Kings and it says, and Satan incited the people or David to number the people. Clearly there is the work of Satan involved in the lives of God's people. You see Satan on the shoulder of the priest Zechariah. You see Satan asking God permission to sift Peter. And so there is very real interaction between the spiritual forces in heavenly places the evil one and the people of God and this world in which we live. You go to Job chapter 1 and 2 and you will see there the incredible power of the evil one as he can bring armies, as he can control weather, and as he can change health. The evil one is alive and well. And it is a very powerful spiritual world. It is a very active spiritual world as well. And it is mainly due to Satan's raging. I again was thinking of this in my study, and I've often thought about Revelation 12 over the years, 
where Satan is uh, there to uh, try and destroy uh, the woman, try and destroy uh, um, Mary, try and destroy the offspring of her womb. And there's a great battle that takes place in heaven. And Satan is thrown out of heaven. And it's strange to me, but this very illustrative, because in verse 12, it says, When Satan is thrown out of heaven, when he is cast down, and they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, that they loved their lives, not even unto death, it says, heaven was rejoicing. Heaven was rid of him. Satan no longer has access to the throne of God as he did before the cross of Christ. He was kicked out. He was defeated at that point. But what heaven lost, earth gained. And it says that as a result of that, Oh, woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows his time is short. Loved ones, the evil one is at work and he is ticked off. He is angry. He knows he has been defeated. And his sole purpose is to destroy the works of God. And who are the primary works of God but the people of God? We read a little bit later in that passage that he says that um, again when the woman was taken away and her offspring was saved. It says, then the dragon became furious with the woman and he went off to make war on the west of her offspring and on those who keep the commandments of God and who hold the testimony of Jesus. Do you ever feel that battle? Do you ever experience that war? Do you ever know the rage of Satan and the heavenly forces that are opposed against us as followers of Christ and against the church? In fact, the gospel of, or the epistle to John, First uh, John, John writes and summarizes the end of this, the book this way. He says, for the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. If there is no reality to this, why would Christ teach us to pray, deliver us from the evil one? It's a very real spiritual battle that we're in. Pastor Barry put in my box uh, a quote from C.S. Lewis, which I find very helpful. And it's so succinct in helping us understand this issue of spiritual issues and the visible and the invisible and the demons and the angels and Satan and God and he uh, C.S. Lewis says there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. Do you know that there are tens of thousands of people who believe nothing of the existence of spiritual evil? The other, though, is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased with both errors. Loved ones, I pray that God would give us a balance. A balance that would help us not deny the spiritual forces of evil that are all around us. But also one that would help us to not live in fear and trepidation of those evil forces. One of the things and many of the things that give me great confidence and great courage as I think about these and as we battle in these areas is that these are not self-created beings. We don't live in a dualistic world where there is God and there is Satan, and we don't know which one is going to win. As we said, the only eternal being, and we sang about him a little bit earlier, the only eternal being in this universe and in this, this whole world is God. He has always been and will ever be. Satan is a created being. And we find this again in Colossians chapter 1, where we read this fascinating picture of Christ's work in creation. 
And it's astounding to me that when he talks about his work in creation, he doesn't allude to animals or human beings or trees or the world or the universe. But this is what he says. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created. Now, he could have said a bunch of stuff at that point. But listen to what Paul says. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, all things were created through him and for him. Loved ones, I think if there's anything for us to be encouraged by, it's to know that evil and the heavenly forces are not out of control. That these were created by Christ. I do not understand this. I do not understand why. But I do trust the word of God when it says that they were created by him and through him and for him. They serve his purposes. I'm also encouraged when I read a little bit later in that same passage. And we'll come to the Lord's table a little bit later. But it says, in you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions by canceling the record of our debt that stood against us with all its legal demands. Then he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. They have been defeated, beloved. It is such a reality that we enter every second of our lives. It is the reality that we engage when we leave this place. It's the reality that we engage when we go to our places of work. It's the reality that we gauge in our spare time. It's the reality that we gauge when we're at home with our families and our children. We are in a spiritual conflict. And so with that sort of background, we come to this particular passage then in Acts chapter 19. And I want to make three points uh, briefly, I hope, with you this morning. The first is simply that when we come to this passage, the first thing that we see and we are confronted with and It's what we ought to keep in mind is God was doing extraordinary miracles. This is again a reminder of who's in control, who's in charge, who has power. God is. And this whole passage, I think, is illustrative of the power that is in this area and the power that is behind these sorts of things. And the very first Greek word of this uh, 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 verse 11 is the word uh, power or miracles. It's a, a word that, that, again, we get dynamite from that, that word group. It's a word that means mighty deeds or acts of power. Mighty deeds, acts of power God was doing by the hands of Paul. And then the very last word of verse 20 is this word which means to prevail or to um, uh, overpower or to strengthen. And so, every, and then in between, in verse 16, we find the same word used there that, that the demon-possessed man who was Filled with the demon, he overpowered the seven um, uh, uh, sons of Sceva. And so I think power is one of the things that we are to recognize here, whether it's God's power or the power of darkness at work. I think we ought to recognize, too, very clearly that Luke is careful to say it is God that is work, not Paul. It is not Paul that is running around doing these amazing miracles. It is God who is at work through Paul. And I think it's important to go back to Acts chapter 2, verse 22, and see the same thing at work in the life of Christ Jesus. Because there we see, when they were talking about him, he says, Men of Israel, hear the words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him. Even through Christ, it was God 
working and performing and doing mighty miracles and mighty deeds. So, loved ones, we need to keep that in mind. There is no man or woman or boy or girl that can do these things. They are done by the power of God who are at work. I think there's another thing that's rather extraordinary here, and Luke draws our attention to it. He doesn't say that God was going around um, doing uh, just uh, deeds or miracles through the hands of Paul. He says he was doing extraordinary works. I think there was something going on in the city of Ephesus that was extraordinary. That these mighty deeds were even beyond the norm of miracles. And we see that. Uh, we see that in Acts chapter 5 when Peter is walking along and his shadow is cast from the sun. And those who fell into his shadow were healed. That's not normal. That's an extraordinary work of God. Here we have handkerchiefs that face cloths that Paul was using to wipe his skin off and aprons that he was wearing. And I don't know how people got a hold of them. I don't know how they were distributed. But as those were carried away and as they touched people, they were healed and demons came out of them. That was extraordinary stuff that God was doing. Again, this is all evidence to me that the kingdom of God is overtaking the kingdom of this world. It's the inbreaking of the kingdom of God that is being illustrated in these such passages. As we see the kingdom of God freeing people from their bondage and from their oppression. We seal the kingdom of God healing people from their bondage and their oppression. This is what we understand when we teach about the kingdom of God. It's this kingdom that comes to you and I and shatters the the power and the control of the world over us. And delivers us into the kingdom of God. The scriptures are full of the mighty acts of God, loved ones. You can see them at the very first word, and God spoke the world into existence. Is that not an extraordinary act of a mighty God? And then you weave your way through scripture, and you find God in the Exodus delivering his people from Egypt, and you see the extraordinary acts of God's power. You go to the book of Judges, and you see the extraordinary acts of God's power. You go to the book of Jonah, and you see the extraordinary acts of God's power. You go to the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you see the extraordinary acts of God's power. You go into the rest of the Gospels, and you come to Revelation, and you see the extraordinary acts of God's power. Loved ones, this is our God. God is not bound by any laws of physics that we have come to understand. There are numerous laws at work that we have no knowledge of. And after all, this is our Father's world. He is actively engaged in it. God is not bound by circumstances or by historical reality, so He does not still act and do mighty works. God has been involved in so many ways in His world. We know that He has been in the past. We know that He has been in the present. And we know that He will be in the future. I like the way Bruce Milne sums it up where he says, God was and is able to break sovereignly into human life at every level if He so chooses whether in the first century or the 21st century. In other words, beloved, this was not just God working at this time. This God is still at work in our time doing these mighty works. And so as we think about this, this is the God that they were teaching daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This was the the God that Paul was defending through the Scriptures in, in the synagogues. And so it was natural as people began to see these mighty things, they connected these mighty things with the God of Scripture. And so the Word of God continued to increase and prevail mightily. Come to the second aspect here. The name of Jesus was extolled. 
verses 13 to 17. This is a, a fascinating passage of Scripture and, and I think full of stuff that we could stop and think about, but I just want to draw our attention to a few things. First of all, if they say, uh, you know, we have heard that word said or that phrase used that flattery is the, uh, um, or imitation is the highest form of flattery. I don't think the seven sons of Siva would be so quick to use that phrase when we see what happened to them. I think they had the notion that whatever works, I'll use. It says here that they were, during that time, some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists. The power of evil was particularly manifest during the times when Jesus was walking on earth. But it's particularly manifest in places like Tibet and South South America and in Africa. That these sorts of things are at work in our culture and in our world and in our lives. And uh, some people want to copycat and they want to take all the tools so that they can have more power, so that they can make more money. After all, wasn't it the handlers of that young girl who was possessed and she was possessed by a demon who could tell fortunes. And so they made a great deal of money by using the powers of evil. And so no doubt these itinerant exorcists were paid for their exorcisms. And here was another tool that they could put in their tool belt. They had many of them. They had incantations. They had spells. They had Hebrew names of God. They had other papyra. Now here we have this next phrase that we can use. And let's take this and let's put it in our toolbox. But we realize that they were walking into dreadfully frightening ground. I think there should be a, sometimes you see this on TV, warning, do not try this at home. I think somebody should have been carrying around a sign, warning, do not try this in your exorcism. What did they say? I adjure you by Jesus, who Paul proclaims. They didn't know Jesus. They didn't know anything about Jesus. They just saw here an opportunity to use a name, an opportunity to make more money, an opportunity to have more power. And I don't think they saw what was coming. Because as they said that, it says that the evil spirit in the man answered them. And you say, well, what is that all about? Well, I don't entirely know, but the Gospels tell us, and and even those that work in this area tell us that when a demon oppresses somebody and even takes over them, that they can take over their body and the facilities of their body. And so they can speak, they can use their mouth to speak and communicate. And we see this in the in the in some of the deliverances of Jesus. Uh, I think of the man that was uh, the the two men that were all chained up, and Jesus came to them and and he was casting them out, and they begged him. The demons inside of him begged him not to send him into the ocean, but into a flock of sheep. Flock of sheep, herd of pigs, herd of pigs. I just had sheep for dinner last night. Maybe that's why it's on my mind. But they spoke. They used the human body of the person that they inhabited to speak. They said, Jesus, I know. They know the spiritual world. They know the structure of the spiritual world. And you go to the book of Luke and you will find there that many times as Jesus is confronting those oppressed by evil spirits that they confess who he is and Jesus tells them to be quiet and to not make known who he is. And then they say, and Paul, I recognize. Clearly, they understood that Paul was a servant of the Most High God. Back in a couple verses or chapters earlier, when Paul is dealing with that demon-possessed girl who had the spirit of divination in her, when he cast, a, or when she confronted Paul, she kept saying, you are servants of the Most High God. So there was a recognition of Paul and of 
his usefulness to God and of, of being a servant of God. But then he says, but who are you? In other words, these individuals had no connection with Christ. They had no connection with God. They just saw this as another opportunity to, to have power, an opportunity to make money. And then verse 16 says, And the man in whom the evil spirit was leapt on them, overpowered them, so they fled out of the house naked and wounded. The ESV study Bible says that this is a reverse exorcism. And there are some uh, lessons that we can learn from this passage of Scripture. I think one of the first lessons that we need to learn is we need to take seriously this world of evil. We need to take seriously this unseen, invisible reality that is all around us. We need to not mess with this stuff. It is called evil for a reason. I was somewhat taken aback in a Starbucks this week as I took one of their drinks and opened the cap and looked underneath the cap and it says, for your free tea leaf reading, go to this website. I thought that is playing games with something that is enormously dangerous. And yet people do that and they think, oh, this should be fun. I'll just go see what my tea leaves say. But loved ones, the power of evil and the spirits of evil, their desire is not for your good. Do you ever see a demon-possessed person happy and doing good things in the Bible? They're always controlled and harmed and hurt by evil forces. Make no mistake, if you get involved in this area, it will bring pain and hurt and harm into your life. I think the second thing that we understand is that a relationship with Jesus Christ matters. The most important thing in the world is to know Jesus personally. But even in this incident, we see the risen Christ at work, though, that, that uh, he would not allow his name to be profited from and abused by those who just wanted to use him for their own purposes. And he would demonstrate his sovereignty through them and through this evil servant. So there's lessons to be learned. What's the result of all of this? Well, verse 17 is fairly clear. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. Ephesus was a city of probably around 200,000 people at this time. And this was an extraordinary thing that had happened. They were extraordinarily superstitious in this city. And probably over the course of days, uh, it didn't take long for this story and this, this occurrence to get out amongst the people and they realized the power in their evil arts. And they now were up against something that they had never seen before. They were up against a name that they had never heard before. They were up against a power that they had never been confronted with before. And in their hearts and in their minds, they were in sheer fear of the power that was involved in this name. And as a result of that fear, it says the name of the Lord was extolled. That simply means it was magnified. It means that it was praised. It was held in high honor. It means that people spoke carefully of Jesus Christ because they began to understand now that all that Paul had been saying, and some of them had been in the hall, some of them had been in the synagogue, all that Paul had been saying about this Jesus, who he was in his earthly life, the things that he did, the fact that he was God's Messiah, as explained in the Old Testament, they began to put all this together and say, this is who Jesus is. And they recognized that behind the name is the person of Christ. And you go through the book of Acts and you find that's in the name of Jesus that we are to be baptized. In other words, it's in the name of Jesus that we find life. We find that there's healing in the name of Jesus. 
We find that there is faith in the name of Jesus. We find that signs and wonders are done through the name of Jesus. We find that we are to speak boldly in the name of Jesus. We find that there is salvation in nobody else but in Jesus Christ. All because of who He is. And so as a result of this incredible happening, we go to verse 20 and it says, So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. The final impact that we see from this particular text is that the believers got off the fence. It's true as believers that when we become a follower of Christ, we do not get it all right away. In fact, we will be getting it until the day that we die. There is an implication in this passage, which I like, but it demonstrates that Christian growth is always something we should be pursuing. Always something that should be involved in our life. Because it says there in in verse um, 18, and also many of those who were now believers... So these are people who had come to faith in Christ. We don't know how long they had been Christians, but they had been believers that had been sitting on the fence. And they had been, they had, they had accepted Christ into their life, but they hadn't kind of given up their past. They hadn't given up some of their, uh, their, their, their hang on, on the occult and on those magical practices. And they, they thought that they could play in both sort of arenas. And they thought that they were compatible together. They thought that you could have Jesus and you could have this other stuff. But now that the truth is out about evil practices, they confessed their involvement in it. They confessed their struggle with it. They recognized that what they were involved in and what they had been involved in was evil and was dangerous and was against what God's Word said. And so I appreciate this quick glimpse into spiritual growth. That there is always opportunity for us to learn. Always opportunity for us to grow. Always opportunity for us to be confronted by our own sinfulness. By our own sitting on the fence. By the word of God. And in that confrontation then to confess. It's so wonderful this this practice of confession. It's so hard to do but it's so wonderful. Because through confession comes the forgiveness of sins. If you confess your sins he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins. There's a terrible weight that comes from hiding our sins and from ignoring our sins. And so this passage just tells us a path of relief. Confess your sins. And not only is there confession, but there's also repentance, which is a, which is a follow-through of confession. Because it says that not only did they simply confess and divulge their passage practices, but they did something about it to change. They went and they got all of their their papers and all of their amulets and all of their Ephesian letters and all of their incantations and all of the things that had been their source of hope and their source of help and their source of power as they would curse other people and as they would bless other people and as they would trust that their business would bless and somebody else would be cursed. They got all of those things together. They put them in a big pile and they burned them. They didn't give away. They didn't sell them. They burned them. So it made it very difficult for them to go back to their old ways. Repentance is costly, but it is a determination to change direction. It's a desire to make things right. And so again, at the end of this act of confession and repentance, we summarize it with verse 20. So the word of God continued to increase and prevail mightily. Loved ones, it's all about the word of God and all about the name of Christ. You go back again to Psalm 138. It says, You have exalted above all things your name and your word. This is a beautiful illustration of that today. You might wonder, is modern magic and sorcery alive and well in Parksville and Oceanside? Absolutely it is. 
I've seen it with my own eyes. It's all around us. But know that God's power is greater by far. That it stands not a chance against the name of Christ. It stands not a chance against the plan and the purposes of God. So we ought not to run from it. We ought not to be afraid of it. But we ought to be careful around it. And understand that we need to stand in the armor of Christ. So God's power was revealed in His Word and displayed to mankind. And Christ's name was revealed in His Word and in His unwillingness to allow His name to be abused. So what do we do as we go out from here today? We proclaim the Word of God. As we proclaim the Word of God, God will be sure to confirm His Word in many different ways. It might be through extraordinary acts of power. And then we come back full circle because as that happens, the Word increases and prevails mightily. May God's word increase and prevail mightily in our own lives and in our church and in our community. Let's pray.